You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Because uh, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to find the Spirit working time and time again. But that was just a beginning, uh, and I didn't have a handout last week, so some of you uh, asked for one. So, so there it is. Uh, we looked through the, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 which I call the the foundational event, Roman numeral one, uh, for the formation of the church. And then we saw uh, Roman numeral two, how one of the emphases in the book of Acts concerning the Holy Spirit is the fact that the Spirit is the guide of the early church and ours. So we see, for example, how the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit and God sort of had to push uh, the, the Jewish believers to... Uh, to accept the Samaritans, so he delayed the giving of the Spirit to them, but then eventually they received the Holy Spirit. We see on 2b that a, a Gentile, Cornelius, receives the Holy Spirit, but God really has to push Peter, right? Has to give him a vision and a roof and all kinds of things. Uh, and uh, at, at the bottom there, I suggest that the church moves forward in a dialectic. The word dialectic, just think of a, think of a give and take. A give and take. There's a handout right there. Uh, the the way that we move forward in the church, um, what should we do next? We have a decision to make, uh, and so on. Is a this dance, this back and forth between how we feel the Spirit is leading us, but at the same time asking the questions: Is this scriptural? If we feel that the Spirit is leading us in a direction, and there is no scriptural backing for it, then we probably should pause. But uh, almost always the Spirit moves us in uncomfortable directions. But if it is from God, we will also find some scriptural grounding uh, or principles found in it. Um, so that was something to think about for last week on the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, in the, the beginning, the book of Acts, and also for us. Uh, today, the 19th, we're going to look briefly at uh, the gospel in Jerusalem. So why move from uh, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit to the gospel in Jerusalem? If you go to the very last page in your handout, there is the briefest of outlines there. This comes from a German, a German commentary that I find very helpful, Jacob Yerville. Uh, the Apostle Geschichte, the Acts of the Apostles, and it, it, it shows you there uh, how he breaks down the, the Acts of the Apostles, very straightforward. Uh, chapter 1, 1 to 840 is the Jerusalem mission. Then, second main section, the beginning of the mission to the Gentiles, 9 to 15. Then, 3, the mission of Paul to the Diaspora, 15 to 21, and then, the last seven chapters of Acts have to do with the trial of Paul as he goes to Rome. So where we are in this map, in this outline, is in Roman numeral one, uh, the Jerusalem mission. The Jerusalem mission. So now then, I'm driving you crazy with all this handouts. But <laughs> now we come to the one for today, which is uh, on the top right is uh, 119. 119. Um, what do we what do we mean when we say that uh, the gospel comes to Jerusalem? Well, 
what I want to do is do this, uh, sort of an overview of uh, the first section, chapters 1 through 8, really chapters 2 through 8, and uh, look at, all, at a number of texts and uh, try to answer the question, uh, what does it look like when the gospel is in Jerusalem? And uh, the first text that I want us to read together is Acts chapter 2. So if we look at that text, uh, especially the ending of chapter 2, if you recall, this is after Peter has preached that powerful sermon in Pentecost. Uh, many have converted to the gospel of Jesus. And then in 42 to 47, we have a summary of the result of the preaching of the gospel in Jerusalem. So we read in verse 42. I'm reading from the new today's NIV. Excuse me. Uh, interesting title today. So it can never get old because it's today's NIV. Okay. <laughs> today's NIV it says, uh, "They and who is they? They is the apostles, the believers, and all those who converted." in that massive preaching there in chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers or the believers, excuse me, were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this is a uh, summary of what happens uh, in Jerusalem. So here's a way to come at this question. Do you remember uh, the baptism, of, the promise of John? The, sorry, my uh, tongue is going ahead of my which often happens, but uh, not a good thing. Uh, so John the Baptist promised, uh, there is one who is greater than me. Uh, I baptize you with water, but one who is greater than me, when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that is what happened in chapter 2, right? It says that the believers were together in the upper room, and then a rushing wind and like tongues of fire came upon them, and they began to speak in other tongues, and they went out and they praised God and they preached. So they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit simply means it's another way of talking of the kingdom of God. So when the Holy Spirit comes, that Jesus promised, uh, the result is the coming of the kingdom of God. So what does the kingdom of God look like in a church? What does the reality of the kingdom of God look like in a church? And I think that's what Luke summarizes here in this first section. So I have uh, six observations quickly to make here about what does it mean when the, when the kingdom is at a church. Right? We expect the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. As we will look in a few minutes, it's not here in its totality. But the kingdom of God has done, has broken in with the coming of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit. A, uh, a church where the kingdom of God is present is a church devoted to apostolic teaching. It's a church, A, devoted to apostolic teaching. 
So what, what does it mean here when it says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching? Well, think about it. The apostles and those around the apostles were the authoritative messengers of Jesus. They were witnesses of what he said. They were witnesses of his crucifixion and they were witnesses of his resurrection. And in John, uh, John, Gospel of John, chapters 14 to 17, he says, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he's going to remind you of everything I said to you. So the apostles and their circle are the authoritative, let me use a big word here, tradents, the ones who carry on the tradition that began with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus taught them about the Old Testament and about himself. And what the apostles are doing is they're continuing that teaching. This is the reason why later in chapter 6, when there is a problem about uh, distribution of food between the Greek-speaking widows and the uh, Aramaic-speaking widows, you remember that later in chapter 6, the apostles say, we should not, uh, we should not uh, dedicate ourselves to serving the tables. Uh, and a lot of people read that and saying. Oh, you know, that means that uh, ministers shouldn't be serving at the table. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is that because they were the witnesses of Jesus, their duty should be to pass that tradition rather than cleaning tables. Uh, not because cleaning tables is a bad thing or below them, but because they have the Jesus, the Jesus tradition. So the kingdom of God in a church, looks what it looks like is people devoted to the teaching of the apostles. We can... Uh, uh, broaden that and say people who are devoted to the teaching of the scriptures. If there is no teaching of the scriptures, there is no kingdom of God. Okay. B, the kingdom of God in a church also looks like uh, fellowship. It's the very well-known word here that, that Luke uses, koinonia. They were devoted to fellowship. So they enjoy being with one another. I'm sure there were introverts like myself in the early church, but but they had there had to be some sort of uh, community and unity and hanging out in some sort of in some sort of fashion. Fellowship is important. Thirdly, we have see the breaking of bread. And we can call that the Eucharist. In the early church, the Eucharist included before it in an actual meal. So the church would get together, especially the poor would come in. You would have an actual feast, a meal. And after the meal, then you would break bread and have the Eucharist. That, by the way, is why Paul is upset in 1 Corinthians, what is it, 10, 11? Yep. When he says, uh, the rich in the church, you guys are eating all the food. By the time the poor get to the church, there is no food left. So he says, what you're celebrating is not the Lord's Supper. So, uh, see, then there is a commitment to the Eucharist. Fourth, or D, letter D, is there are wonder, works of wonder, miracles that were being performed by the apostles. We're going to see that in the next chapter. 
A man who is lame is healed. Uh, and later on we're going to hear about the powerful signs that the apostles were given. The question arises, should we expect in the church signs and wonders and miracles? Well, I don't see why not. I don't see uh, any section in scripture that would say that God is not doing miracles like that. So I don't have a problem with that uh, as long as it is glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, uh, E in, in the handout is uh, they took care of the poor. The presence of the kingdom of God in the church meant that those who had help those who did not have. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, that is a radical kind of discipleship. Uh, Jerusalem, just like today, was expensive back then. It was very expensive to live in Jerusalem. So for people to sell properties that they had in that area and give it to the poor was a very sacrificial act. Uh, but they made sure that everyone had their needs met. Uh, that was central to the kingdom of God. It's huge in, in, in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, the two, the two volumes of Acts, that uh, helping the poor is very, very important. Uh, what does that look like today? What does that mean? Well, you know, you look at the rest of the New Testament and sometimes you do have radical giving like this. And sometimes you have less radical giving. I think it would be a mistake to make this text normative without looking at the rest of the Bible and say that the vision of the kingdom of God is sort of a communism. Uh, when was it that, that Christians in America began to sell everything and live in communes? Uh, that in the 70s? The Jesus people? Does anyone remember that? Yeah, I think... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so a number of Christians took this very seriously, and they sold everything they had, and they lived in a commune, and so. And you know, I'm not going to criticize that because, wow, what a what a sacrificial giving. Uh, but uh, I, I think you have to let the Holy Spirit guide you and lead you if He wants you to do something radical like that. He may. Uh, we have to be open to that. At the very least, there has to be an openness to making sure that the poor among us have their needs met. Okay. Any questions about this uh, area, which tends to be difficult in some ways? Uh, we know, for example, when you look later in the book of Acts, that uh, Philip, one of the seven that I'm going to mention, that he had a home in Caesarea. So that implies that not everyone sold their homes for them. But then we hear about Barnabas selling his home and giving it, putting the what uh, the proceeds at the hands of, at the feet of the apostles. So God is moving in different ways there. Lastly, uh, uh, F. What does it look like when the kingdom of God is in a church, according to the Acts of the Apostles? It's, uh, it says, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. 
So I would say that there is a sense of joy. Uh, the theme of joy is very common in Acts for those who have been saved. And that joy leads to an outburst of praise to God. There is joy. So what a beautiful portrait this is of uh, the kingdom of God. Uh, when he breaks in in the church, uh, how there is a horizontal aspect to it, caring for one another, having fellowship with one another, but there is also a vertical aspect to it, just uh, breaking bread and singing to him with joy. Any questions on this first section on the kingdom of God has come to Jerusalem. Uh, and this is what we should expect uh, when the Lord returns. A lot of people say, you know, I talked to my eight-year-old who's getting baptized today. So, so I, incidentally, I have to finish uh, sooner today. But uh, that, you know, when we go to heaven, heaven, heaven. heaven. Talk talk about heaven a lot. So what do you mean? What do you you know? So what do, what do you think? What do you mean by that? And uh, most people have the idea of fly, floating around in a cloud. You know, uh, I don't. If that's not going to heaven, I I don't. Want, <laughs> I could see why an eight year old doesn't want to go to heaven. It's scary, kind of, to be floating around in a cloud. Uh, that idea of of the uh, destiny and the eternity of the believers is 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 very Greek. It's more Platonic. It comes more from Greek philosophy like Plato, where there is this uh, breaking off of the body from the soul, and only the soul is worthy to have to experience that, that which is eternal. But that's not biblical. That's not the Old Testament. God made the world, and he made it good, Genesis 1 and 2. So the kingdom of God is going to be like this. It's going to be believers together, praising God, eating, enjoying life. Uh, now it's going to be different. There's we're, there's not going to be sin or suffering or disease, uh, but it's not going to. I suspect it's going to be much more earthy. Kingdom of God is going to be much more earthy than the abstract stuff that we think about. That makes me want to look forward to it. Uh huh. So this uh, on the timeline of where we are here is of course we're after the, the death of Jesus. Uh huh. Or we're, the, these people are completely reliant on the apostles' teaching. I mean, this is certainly, obviously, before Luke has written about Acts, and it's also before any epistles or any yeah. epistles have been written. So this is all sort of word of mouth, so to speak. So, yeah, so. yeah. We're 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 in the early 30s, yeah. I would say. So not even the the 40s. So so I don't think there is anything written yet. Uh, you know, uh, that kind of raises the question of uh, orality in the early church. How, so, ooh, I don't really, I don't want to go, well, I think this is important. In the 1920s and 30s and 40s, uh, a German theologian uh, by the name of Rudolf Bultmann, some of you might have heard that name, uh, he was trying to investigate of uh, how, what kind of, um, Institutionally, how did the early church think of the passing on of tradition? How was tradition passed? Uh, and he looked at uh, some 
um, older civilizations of Europe and how they passed down oral tradition. And uh, it was very loose. It was uh, like the telephone game. You know, anyone has, has played that? And so <clears throat> for Rudolf Bultmann and others, they said that uh, what, what you have in the Gospels uh, are probably not the things that Jesus said or what he did. Uh, in fact, he would say that the church was not even interested in that. The church was more inter interested in the race Jesus than in what Jesus did among us. Uh, whereas uh, later in the 60s and 70s, a group of Swedish scholars began to do uh, scholarship on rabbinic methods of oral tradition. Remember, Jesus was, of course, Jewish. He was a rabbi, and the group was a rabbinic it was sort of a rabbinic group. And what you find in the, in the Jewish writings is that the passing on of oral tradition is very, very precise and very, very tight. So uh, the rabbi would say something and it had to be memorized, totally memorized by the group. And then it would be passed on. However, it would also be expected that what you heard from the master rabbi, you kept it. Uh, you memorized it, but then you applied it too to the situation where you were a rabbi at the moment. So, uh, so anyways, that, that, you know that's, and and then that that broke down the whole the idea of Bultmann that the tradition of the Gospels was uh, was not true and all that. So, I think that's important. Okay, let's move on then uh, to the, to the Roman numeral two. Um, sort of the impressions that we get from the gospel in Jerusalem. Another impression that, that, I, that I get is uh, the following. Uh, there is a, a message. The preaching of the apostles is the following. Uh, it is centered on the suffering and raised Christ. Uh, and there is an emphasis that the message they are preaching about Jesus is the same message as the old covenant of the Old Testament, but now fulfilled. So there, there is a strong emphasis on we're not preaching anything new to you. We are preaching the Old Testament, but fulfilled. So if you look at the next chapter, chapter 3, here, uh, notice the emphasis of Peter beginning in verse 12. Uh, he, has, he has just healed a man who was a lame. And in verse 12, he gives a sermon. And he says... It says, when Peter saw this, he said to them, People of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? And now listen to the language. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. So right away, he wants to make a connection between Jesus and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then if you look a little further in that sermon of uh, Peter, in verse 17, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets. So, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Old Testament prophets, Um, verse 22 for Moses said 
the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. So there is a strong emphasis that on the fact that their preaching is preaching of the Old Testament, not something new. And that raises a question that, that I want us to wrestle with for a, for a couple of minutes. And that is, why is it important that the father of Jesus is the same as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? This is something that you're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts. And you're also going to see in the epistles of Paul. Why is it important? Why does the early church so emphasize that the father of Jesus is none other than than the same as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So let's bounce this one around a little bit. Why would that be important for the early Christians? Any thoughts? Yes, so... He's fulfilling all of the Old Testament. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, and why is that important that he's fulfilling that, those scriptures, and not others? I mean, there were other scriptures. The Gentiles, the Greeks had their own <coughs> epics and mythologies and religion. Why? So why, why the Old Testament? Well, to keep the Jews on board, right? With the message. I mean, this is their... They had a lot of different people they, that John and Peter were dealing with. People who were Greeks, people who were pagans, people who were Jewish. But they were trying to solidify the Jewish belief in Christ, right? Uh-huh. So you see, sort of unapologetic. So we're using the Old Testament partly to make sure that the Jews are here. Uh-huh. I, I do see that, especially later when they're preaching to Jews outside Jerusalem. Uh, I, I mean, if I think, I think I see what you all are saying. Basically, you believe that the Old Testament is true. <laughs> it's the Word of God. And so, if it's the Word of God and it's true, uh, then if you fulfill it, then you are the true, the real Messiah. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that is the key. Why is it important that it's the same as the, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Number one, well, because... Jesus himself said that, <laughs> so that makes it important. But it's also important because uh, they believed, Jesus being Jewish, uh, that God had decided to reveal himself of all people. He decided to reveal himself to the Jews in a special way and to make a covenant with them, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would reveal himself as the true God, the only God, and that they would become a light to the nations, Isaiah 42. And so, uh, under the conviction that this was true, that their God is the only God, the apostles and Jesus himself always highlight that we're not preaching something new to you, we are preaching the Old Testament. It's just that we believe that the promises of the Old Testament have actually been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And many Jews said, no, we don't believe that. Why not? Well, because he was crucified. And our scriptures say that cursed is the one who is, hangs upon a tree. Uh, but the, the apostolic answer is, 
Yes, but God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. And when he raised him from the dead, he showed you that even though he was cursed on a tree, it wasn't because he deserved it, it was because he was bearing our curse on the tree. But, but that he is not a curse as such, is clear because God vindicated him through the resurrection of the dead. If there was no resurrection, they had no message to preach. Jesus would have been just like another Jewish martyr of the period. There were a lot of Jewish martyrs during the time of Jesus, or think before during the time of the Maccabees, who uh, said, we are not going to stop obeying the Torah. If you want to uh, kill us, kill us. But we're not going to stop obeying the Torah. And many of them were killed, and, many, and the Romans crucified many. Jesus was crucified, but he was raised. And the apostles say, we are witnesses of, of these things. So, the dialectic here, to use that word again, as, as you read more through Acts and then uh, through the New Testament, is you're going to find the, the following. That you cannot know who Jesus is unless you know who the God of the Old Testament is. But you cannot know who the God of the Old Testament is unless you know who Jesus Christ is. So there is this, again to use that, that word, dialectic, this this back and forth, this tension that you find in the Bible, where to know the God of Israel, He has manifested Himself, He has revealed Himself climactically and def definitively in Jesus Christ. Remember the book of Hebrews, how it begins? Uh, God in the past in many ways and spoke to the, spoke to the, but now He has spoken through the Son, right? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Uh, in Jesus Christ, we finally see who God is. But at the same time, to know who Jesus Christ is, you need to go back to the Old Testament. So, you, so the church cannot do away with the Old Testament precisely for those reasons. Remember later in the second century, a heretic by the name of Marcion? Remember, he said, uh, you know, uh, the God of the Old Testament is not the real God. That's more of a wrathful, vengeful God. Uh, the real God is the God of Jesus, the one that you find in, uh, in, in Jesus and so on. Uh, well, that's the church, of, of course, pushed back against that. That cannot be the case. All right, uh, let's go for three more minutes and then I'll have to stop. Uh, okay, so beautiful, right? The kingdom is here. The kingdom of God is in Jerusalem. Look at it, the wonderful things that are happening. Roman numeral one, they're still preaching. But number three, there is going to be resistance to the apostolic message. And that's Roman numeral three. The apostolic message is resisted, but note, by the elite of Jerusalem. By the elite of Jerusalem. This, by the way, is how we know that the kingdom of God is not here in its totality. When the kingdom of God is here in its totality, Scripture says that God is going to put His enemies under His feet. And there is not going to be any tension or persecution. In fact, the saints in the book of Revelation cry out all the time, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Because they know when the, the kingdom is here totally, there is not going to be any persecution. But it's, it's here and it's already not yet. It's one way to think about it. The kingdom is here, but it's not yet in its totality. And that's why there is resistance to the message. Who are the ones resisting the message? Well, we have to be careful here. We, uh, you know, I've often heard things like, the Jews rejected Jesus. 
Well, yes, there were many Jews who rejected Jesus, just like there were many Gentiles who rejected Jesus. But when you look at the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, the emphasis falls on the elite of Jerusalem as the ones who rejected and let the massive rejection of Jesus. So if you look at chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, real quick, we find uh, the following. After they had preached, they had healed a man. Then they preach, and then verse 5, the next day the rulers... The elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And now listen to who these are. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. Remember, our thought of a priest, sometimes is marked by Roman Catholicism. He's a priest, oh, then he's poor, you know. <laughs> he has no property. and uh, But not so in the... In this period, the the priests were the elite of the culture. Uh, they were the intelligentsia of the culture, and in Jerusalem, they were the ones who controlled the relationship between the Jews and the Romans. So here you see that the ones who are leading the rejection of the message of Jesus are uh, these are the family of the high priests. Why? Well, they are concerned that. The Romans would see the disciples of Jesus as a revolutionary movement. And I don't know if you've ever been in a country where, where uh, a foreign power has come in. Uh, I'm from Latin America, so I've experienced that a little bit. and read a, a little bit about that. But often, here's what tends to happen. The elite of the country that is over power, those elites sometimes may cause with the invaders, the ones who are coming. That's almost always what happens. The elite make cause with uh, those who are coming and taking over a country and take, taking power. And why? Because they're elites and they live well. They they, they're not interested in revolution. Revolution for what? I live well. I have money. I have land. <laughs> uh, but the poor people, they're the ones who want the revolution. You see? And so that's exactly what was happening here. The, the priests had a good life. Sure, they were under the Romans and all that, but they were wealthy and they had everything they needed. So they did not want a movement that would cause problems uh, to be spreading out. So they stopped. They tried to stop the preaching of the gospel. And yet, uh, Roman numeral 3b, yet the Holy Spirit continues to empower the apostles for, for proclamation. Uh, even though they are threatened by the elite of the culture, yet because they have received the Holy Spirit, chapter 2, they nevertheless continue the proclamation of the gospel. Um, we don't have time to keep going, but uh, you can look at this at home if you, if you want to, but uh, God is going to raise, the Holy Spirit is going to raise, Roman numeral 4, seven men here, uh, you're gonna, you can see that in chapter 6 to 8, who began to be the bridge between Jerusalem and the Gentiles. So the gospel, the Jewish gospel, is coming to Jerusalem, wonderful. But what about those who have never heard of the true God of Israel? Uh, a lot of those Jews don't want to go to speak to Gentiles because they're afraid of, of, uh, of breaking purity rules. So God raises seven, Stephen, Philip, uh, and many others, who are 
Jews who have lived among Gentiles already and are used to living among Gentiles, he's going to raise those seven to go and be the bridge between Jerusalem and uh, the Gentiles. And what ends, what ends up happening is that when the first section of Acts ends, uh, is the gospel goes to a eunuch who was the most impure person in antiquity. Uh, I'll talk about that next week. Uh, but it goes to the ends of the earth, to Ethiopia. So, okay, we'll, we'll have to stop there. Any any quick questions, that, uh, curiosities or questions or uh, concerns from, from this text? Okay, we'll stop there. The Lord be with you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.